Wherever cancer is, Hancock Health will fight. In any part of you and in all corners of East Central Indiana. From Indianapolis to Greenfield to Knightstown to Greensburg. From hospital rooms to family rooms, we fight. With technology and medicine. With care backed by the wisdom of Mayo Clinic. For you, for your family, and for your future in Decatur County. We fight cancer here. HancockHealth.org slash cancer. This is the first day of the WIBC Sunday Magazine Show. I'm Terry Stacy, along with Kylan Talley. Good morning. Good morning, little one. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday to you. Our Facebook fan of the day, little shout out to Orly Knutsen. Orly Knutsen. He is the happy Norwegian. He, happy Norwegian. The happy Norwegian. He worked here long ago and was loved by everybody and still is. He's still obviously here in central Indiana. And uh, Orly Knutsen, we're crazy about you, buddy. Aww. Thank you for, for uh, being a part of our first day Facebook page. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thanks for listening. Oh, he's a good guy. If you so much fun. Want to be the next Facebook fan of the day? Go give us a follow on First Day with Terry Stacy on Facebook. Just give us a like, comment, share anything, and maybe you can be the next one. Yeah, maybe you can. Thank you for doing just that. We appreciate it so very much. Uh, we're going to hear from Denny Smith this hour with Investing Sense. And if you're headed to the Indianapolis Home Show, please stop by the Precision Outdoors Living Stage. That's where I'll be, and that's where the experts will be sharing tips today about decluttering your home, uh, this year's furniture trends, and home organizing. And you can get your discount tickets at Indianapolis Home Show. In case you missed it on social media or haven't uh, been to the Indianapolis International Airport recently, Kylan was telling me a great story about uh, they built a basketball court out there as we get ready for the WNBA or the W, the NBA uh, All-Star Championship game. Yep. It's a full-size court. So not just two basketball hoops put up. It's a full-size court in the middle of the airport that you walk into. It's crazy. And I've seen so many people comment, I'm going to be missing my flight because I want to do a 3v3 real quick. Now, here's the thing that they've had to let everybody know. I'm glad you mentioned that because just to reiterate, the basketball court at the airport is a visual and is not meant to play basketball. What? So don't bring your balls to the airport. Don't do it. Don't get on the court. It's almost think of it as art. As we welcome thousands and thousands of people to Indianapolis uh, beginning February, that week of February 16th through the 18th. Pretty cool. Mean Girls, the 2024 musical version doing very well at the box office with $33.2 million through the MLK holiday. Heard this story this week about real life Mean Girls. Kylan, when did you start buying makeup? Oh my gosh. At what age? Hmm. Do you remember? Because Kylan doesn't wear very much makeup. No. She's a natural beauty. I really just wear makeup if it's for theater. That's and that's really it. it. Theater she and doesn't. film. I did. My sister got makeup one time, and I got into that. But I don't remember ever getting makeup myself. Well, this story has emerged this week about real-life mean girls, and they're getting younger. Employees are fed up with 10-year-old Sephora kids, is what they're calling them. These are preteen girls that have been causing all kinds of disruptions and disrespectful disrespectful behavior in beauty retail stores like Sephora and Ulta. They are um, just being awful. 
They're being brats is what they are. They're mean girls. And so this week in particular, a lot of stories have popped up about employees being bullied by these 10-year-old girls and their antics. They're just being left in the store. They're coming into the stores and they're 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 misbehaving and they're they're rude and uh these are preteen girls ages 9 to 12. And I just started to think that made me think, I wonder I don't think I was even allowed to wear makeup until you know, maybe a little bit of eyeshadow or something when I was probably 16 or 17, but certainly not when I was 9 or 10 years old. I don't remember ever having a restriction, but we weren't really into it. We would love painting our nails. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my baby sister now, she's four years old, loves getting into the makeup, puts mm-hmm. lipstick as eyeshadow yeah. across her eyes. Oh, yeah. So I could see yeah. her becoming one of those, but I think it's just one that you don't have to... Because if you put a ban on it for them, then they're going to want to get into it anyways. So yeah, that's what you would do. So you know that. this story because they, they're thinking about banning kids from coming into oh. the Sephora, the Sephora, some of the beauty stores. They really are. So they can uh, just monitor. Come on. Yeah, come on. I mean, what are they doing? They're nine years old and they're on their own anyway. This is a that's just a terrible thing. And people are being they, well, they're being the employees are upset too. So yeah. Anyway, just some new words to understand. Sephora kids. Well, coming up this hour. We are going to meet an actor that is coming to town for To Kill a Mockingbird. And we are just four weeks from the Daytona 500, three weeks from the Super Bowl, and 28 days from the NBA All-Star Game. We will meet Diana Boyce, the vice president of the NBA All-Star Weekend, when we return to the first day on 93 WIBC. Welcome back to the first day on 93 WIBC. I'm Terry Stacy along with Kylan Talley. We're just weeks away now from the NBA All-Star Weekend happening at Gainbridge Fieldhouse. And joining us now is Diana Boyce. She's the vice president of the All-Star NBA Weekend. It's so great to talk to you, Diana. How are you? Just doing great. Really excited here in Indianapolis and all that's to come to our great city. How many guests do you anticipate will be visiting Indy for the game? We anticipate we'll see more than 125,000 visitors who will roll into town. The beauty of NBA All-Star 2024 is that it is an international event. So beyond visitors, we also are anticipating 1,800 media. Basketball, when you show somebody a basketball, it's a language that's spoken worldwide, right? I mean, everybody understands that no matter what language they truly speak. And so we're excited to have that international spotlight really shining on Indianapolis again. Did the work really begin as soon as we got word Indy was selected to host the NBA All-Star Weekend, or did it start even before? It definitely starts before. You have people who go out and basically scout. They visit these other All-Stars. We've had people on the team from Pacer Sports Entertainment that have been to multiple All-Stars over the past to decide, you know, how would this look in our city? Do we want to tackle this in our city? And, yes, we absolutely wanted to. And so we were awarded the bid in 2017. And listeners might remember we were actually supposed to host in 2021. So there have been some people working on this for quite some time, and we're excited to see this all coming to fruition. Here's what I love. I love that you've created opportunities for fans in Indiana to connect with visitors and the event itself, starting with nothing but knit. Absolutely. So 
we have a goal of making this the most fan-accessible and fan-centric NBA All-Star that the NBA has seen. And this is how Indianapolis does these major events. We don't just turn over the keys to the building and say, all right, event organizer, have a great event. We like to make it so much more than the event, more than the game, as I like to say. And those are the sorts of experiences that really will make an impact and leave a legacy in our community long, long after the actual game and NBA All-Star has left town. So you mentioned one, nothing but knit. And our goal with that was to reach out, not just across the state, but to people who have a, an interest in knitting, crocheting, hand-making beanies. And so we did. We launched that in 2019, again, headed toward 2021. And we thought we would need four or 5,000 beanies, maybe. And we received an overwhelming response to that. And leading into the All-Star, which we are anticipating hosting in 2021, we actually have 7,600 plus beanies that we received that were all blue and gold, the Pacers colors, and then pressed pause with the COVID button there. And we put those into uh, containers, stored them, and then dusted them back off here this last summer because we want to bring them to life during NBA All-Star 2024. So actually, we have been transporting those back and forth to the residents at the Indiana Women's Prison, and they have been sewing the official NBA All-Star patch on them, and then we're getting ready to actually gift those out across our community to guests for the weekend from the NBA, to our concierge workers, to our airport workers, to our volunteers, to our employees, all of those people will be decked out in these lovely blue and gold, nothing but knit beanies. And then there's the love letters to basketball. Can we still write a love letter? Absolutely. We would love to have love letters from all over the state of Indiana. So what is the concept is probably something we should help your listeners understand. The goal with this is that we have love letters. It's a template, and you can pick those up at any Pacers game. We have them on the concourse or at our guest relations desk here in Gamebridge Fieldhouse. And you tell us why you love basketball, what the sport of basketball means to you, what it means to you as a youth, as a participant, as a fan, as a coach, as a referee. How has basketball impacted you? And whether that's something you want to draw or whether you want to tell a little story about it, whether you want to talk about how you got into the industry or the fact that you learned how to work in a team, whatever the case might be, just a couple sentences. We then are taking all of those love letters with a goal of receiving 8,000 of them, and we are going to place those in the hotel rooms of all of the guests who are coming into town for NBA All-Star 2024 from February 16th through the 18th as a nice warm greeting. Here's why Indiana is truly the heartland and the home of basketball. There's one person's perspective on it, and we hope it offers you a nice welcome and enjoy your stay here in Indianapolis. And then there's the love letters to basketball. Can we still write a love letter? I love the fact that you think I wrote one. I have written <laughs> many of them. Have you? Yes, absolutely. And we encourage you to write more than one, for sure. Okay. Uh, so if I'm working at a uh, promotional pop-up or something like that, we all sit down and we just write another one. So, yes. But um, my love letter to basketball has a lot to do with the fact that I have never been a very good athlete on the court. I have been somebody who's good at things that happen on the sidelines or behind the scenes. And so for that, I owe a lot to the sport of basketball and to sports in general because I've been able to dedicate my time both as a volunteer and then also in a few of my career opportunities with putting time into some of the major events that are here in Indianapolis. And so now having the opportunity to work with 
NBA All-Star, and all of Pacer Sports Entertainment, and the hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who are assisting us, both on the host committee and as a general volunteer, and our board of directors. It's just, it continues to make an impact on my life, and that just goes beyond the fact that, you know, born, basketball was born and, and raised here in Indy, and uh, whether it was from Connorsville or French Lick or Terre Haute or Evansville and Fort Wayne and northern Indiana, uh, basketball is, you're going to see it. You're going to see it all the time, and you're going to feel that, and you're going to, on All-Star Weekend, you're going to uh, feel that energy through what Indianapolis and Indiana bring to life through Hoosier Hysteria. I recently heard about the NBA All-Star Weekend app. Tell us about the app. NBA Events app. So highly encourage you to get the NBA Events app. We're actually twofold. I'm going to approach this two different ways. We're still okay. looking for local businesses to participate. So if you are a local business, we're not looking for chains to participate, but we are looking for that local business to register you as a participant, no cost to participate. And then you become a check-in point and we will send you a welcome pack. So you can put, um, you know, a poster on your window, or if you're a restaurant, we've got table tents for you, that sort of thing that identifies you as a check-in point for the NBA rewards app. What does that mean then? Well, then me as a citizen, if I'm using the NBA events app, I can go to these places and I can check in. So some people might remember Foursquare, those sorts of things. It's the opportunity Mm -hmm. literally to just go to be in that geographic space and you check in. Checking in points, points equal prizes. Well, what does that mean? We have prizes that the NBA, this is all run through the NBA events app. Those prizes include things like tickets to the events. So I can tell you that we have already seen two people here who have checked in at more than 500 locations through the NBA events app and have secured themselves each a pair of tickets to NBA All-Star Saturday, or Sunday night. Wow. So there are opportunities like that are available just by checking in. One of the really cool things about it is the businesses that we've engaged so far across the state of Indiana. So we have businesses from Evansville to Northwest Indiana to Anderson as well as Indianapolis. The businesses, we have more than 70% of them that are XBE businesses. So very excited about the opportunity to engage them. Then we also worked with the NBA to say beyond businesses, we would love to be able to have check-in points that are focused on the history that is so rich here with Indiana basketball. So we've identified more than 40 different locations that are basketball-centric locations. So the Mascot Hall of Fame or the John Wooden statue on Georgia Street. And then as we build into All-Star Weekend, we will identify more of those spaces that will become check-in points as well as we create some of those pop-up opportunities. So if you're a business that would like to be included, what do you do? They just need to go to NBA All-Star 2024, and you'll find information about actually everything. For anyone that would like to be a part of the fun and doesn't have a ticket, uh, are there volunteer opportunities still available? There is always room at the end. So whether you're looking for a ticket opportunity or a volunteer opportunity, we have space for you. We would encourage you to go to Indiana Sports Corporation's website to volunteer. Then if you're looking for ticket opportunities, you can always look at nbaexperiences.com, and there are ticket opportunities. Plus, we have tickets to general events. So Friday Night Rising Stars is the celebrity game that's happening at Lucas Oil Stadium. The HBCU game on Saturday, there are still tickets available for all of those, as well as the fan experience called crossover. And again, those ticket opportunities you can all find through the NBA events app. But one last plug for a volunteer effort that I would like to say is that 
Indiana is taking through our local host committee and we are elevating what is typically a two or three hour service project that the NBA has and we are making it a 24 hour service project. Ooh. So all things 24, uh, we wanted to do this. So we are doing 24 hours of service starting Thursday, February 15th of NBA All-Star Weekend. And we're going to work for 24 hours in partnership with Million Meal Movement and the NBA and our local community. And we're going to pack 1 million meals at Lucas Oil Stadium. The, the cool piece of that, so 90 minutes to volunteer, those million meals are all staying in Indiana. So the work that you're doing is giving directly back to our community. It's awesome. The NBA All-Star Weekend, February 16th, 17th, and 18th at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, 73rd All-Star Game, and the first time in almost 40 years that the NBA All-Star Game will be here in Indianapolis. Diana Boyce, Vice President of the NBA All-Star Weekend, thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, coming up, we'll meet the actor who's portraying Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird that's coming to Indy next week. After the news, right here on 93 WIBC. Welcome back to the first day on 93 WIBC. It is Terry Stacy along with Kylan Talley and Broadway in Indianapolis presents the first national tour of critically acclaimed record-breaking production of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. It's coming to Clues Hall January 23rd through the 28th. Tickets on sale right now, but there are not a lot of them left, so you've got to get those tickets right away, and we'll get that information for you in a moment. But Kylan, you and I are very lucky to have with us right now actor Yeager. T. Welch, who plays Tom Robinson. Yeagle, it is so nice to meet you. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? We're doing great, and it's so nice to have you with us. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Well, I originally grew up in, um, near the Los Angeles County area in Riverside, California. I went to college in Atlanta, Georgia, and did some more school in Boston and some more school in D.C., and I landed in New York City, where I live now. This role of Tom Robinson, you know very well because you auditioned and got the part performing on Broadway. Why did you want this role in this particular play so very much? You know, it's, that's an interesting question because I always wanted my art and my um, personal passions and, and, um, to sort of coincide. This play, you know, at the heart of it, it's about coming of age and awareness and empathy, but also there's an element of social justice in it. And I like being a part of something where I get to do something that's socially impactful and meaningful, but I'm also getting to do something that's very artistically fun and fulfilling. So when this opportunity came along, I, I knew, I remember hearing about it being done. And usually by the time you hear about something happening in New York City, it's likely already cast. Yeah. It likely already has, you know, <laughs> bigger names and everything attached to it. But I was already working on a show at the time, and I, I said, you know what? If it's still around when I get done with this show, I'm going to go for it. And it was, and I did go for it, and I got it. And you got the part. Mm -hmm. uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, I got to read in school. When you were growing up, is this ever a part you imagined that you'd be playing? Uh, yes. It's a part I imagined I would be playing. Not when I first, of course, uh, read the book in, in junior high school. I really didn't even fully grasp what it was all about in terms of uh, what was happening sociopolitically and that climate, particularly with Jim Crow and all that. That was above my level of understanding at that age. Mm -hmm. But when I saw the movie in college, 
I thought I would be right if something like that ever came along. And then I also earned my equity card doing a citywide tour of it in Boston, up to Philadelphia in Boston. And that's how I joined the union playing Tom Robinson. Oh, okay. So you even played it before Broadway is what I think I hear you say. You played it before you got the role on Broadway. Yes, I did. This particular role. So you get the role on Broadway of Tom Robinson, which if anybody doesn't know, this is the the black man accused of raping a white woman. He's in this role of Tom Robinson. The pandemic hits and then you go away. And it was a long time that you were away and off stage. What did you do during that time away from being on stage and and how long were you away we went on hiatus i want to say it was march 11th or 12th it was a thursday of 2020 and we didn't come back until come back to broadway until october 2021 wow so it was a year and a half of being home i did shoot some television i did some plays that were like that were aired via zoom because people still weren't allowed back into the theaters but, but I shot some television. I shot a television pilot, some episodic episodes on, on a few various TV shows. And to be frank with you, we, like, this is my profession, and we were put out of work. It was a lot of waiting around. And luckily I had some savings, and there was some unemployment coming in and some things that kept me afloat. But it was a, it was a challenging time for live theater performers, um, the pandemic. So when we came back, there was such a celebration because we thought that theater may not be a thing anymore. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird does come back. And when the story returns to the stage then after the pandemic, the country was a different place. And some of those yeah. those things that are part of To Kill a Mockingbird, um, they, that's what we had been dealing with. The country was a different place. Were audiences different, too, that were coming to watch and see the show? Oh, my God, yes. Like, when the play first came to Broadway... There was this energy, and I was in the second company of Killer Mockingbird. It ran for a year before I joined it. But people were sort of nostalgic and just watching a story that they were familiar with their entire lives, and it was nice to see the characters that they grew up knowing, and that was pretty much the energy. Then post-pandemic, this is after George Floyd and so many issues, but I think it was the the George Floyd being murdered in front of everybody's eyes on, on social media and YouTube, where it really transformed our audiences because when we came back, it was a lot more call and response and a very clear perspective on good and evil. And it wasn't that these same people probably wouldn't have had that perspective before, but I don't think they would have been moved to necessarily voice it as passionately as they do now. But it it was actually such a good thing because it shows that uh, the play is telling a story that is, is still so relevant and so necessary for now because it speaks to issues that unfortunately are kind of still happening today. And it makes people address it head on because they can look at instances now in the not so distant past where they can say, oh no, this happens. Sometimes the law can be a little corrupt and unjust and how do we work around that? What can we do about it? Which I think is at the heart of where this play and the novel takes its um, reader or viewer. Mm -hmm. I would love to ask an acting question, if that's all right. No, it is not all right. No, go ahead. I'm a fellow actor here in Indianapolis, and I think it's phenomenal, all the different plays that you've been in, the play that goes wrong, the Painted Rocks at Revolver Creek, the Revengers tragedy, many different parts, but this one specifically plays such a role in To Kill a Mockingbird. For you, what challenged you with taking on this character and being able to put it on the stage to have it still be so relatable for the audience? One, I think that what I try to bring to every character 
that I portray and what I would like the audience to take away from the play is empathy. And, and at the core of it, I don't have to fight so hard to find out why Tom Robinson's journey is so unjust and what makes it, because what happens to Tom Robinson is that it, it's tragic, but he's a hero because he's doing something that is very selfless. You know, um, he's doing something to help somebody and he basically feels his own death by just being honest about what happened. And I think that that is such a heroic thing to do. Um, and it's something that I can relate to um, so much because I have lived in this country um, looking like I look and being who I am, a black man, and I can understand that um, injustice has happened. Whether or not it's happened to me directly in the way that it's happened to Tom is not necessarily important. The fact that I fear that it can happen to me, and I fear it so passionately, literally, like, it means that we still have some work to do because I know I'm not the only one that feels that way, and, and there's evidence of it. And so I think I try to pour in as much truth as I can to Tom Robinson, and a lot of that comes from lived experience. Some of it comes from just knowing about what happens to others and, and knowing about the past in this country. And so I really try to, um, uh, with as much integrity and honesty um, and humanity and empathy, uh, sort of fill the character with all those elements to make it real and relatable. To Kill a Mockingbird, coming to Clues Memorial Hall, and we're talking with the actor who plays Tom Robinson, Yegel T. Welch. Yegel, many people have heard of To Kill a Mockingbird, but if you were meeting someone who hasn't heard of it, what would be the number one reason they should go and see this play? I would say that people should go and see this play because it's a uniquely American tale about social ills that have happened in America, but it's also a coming-of-age story that will transform the viewer simply because it forces us to look at how we move through society and what we do and don't do to help others live a better life in this country, regardless of their age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, religious background, or ethnic identity. I think it forces us to say, how can we make sure everybody else is having the same experience that I'm having that is fair and just? And, and, and what I mean by that is I think if we can all look at each other with a layer of empathy and go, hey, even though this doesn't affect me and I'm living just fine, something is not going right for that neighbor of mine who is different. And what can I do to make sure that they have the same rights that I have? Because we all have to interact, and it's only fair that we have the same experience. But I think that that's the heart of the book. But I think you're going to get a fun and entertaining story, but you're also going to get something that's socially impactful and relevant. And I think you leave transformed. I think To Kill a Mockingbird in and of itself, um, what I love is that it bonds audiences together. It connects people because everybody has a common heart about what's good and bad, and this story makes it so plain and clear, and I think it's the genius of Harper Lee to take an issue where it's like, oh, no, this is definitely wrong, and we can all agree to that, and, and we all want to do something about it. To Kill a Mockingbird spawned uh, birth so many people who want to be lawyers. Attica Finch is a fictional character, but so many people wanted to be lawyers because of this, this character. And so I think the story is just very transformative and it unites people. 
And Emmy Award-winning actor Richard Thomas confirmed to star as Atticus Finch for the Indianapolis version of the history-making production. John Boy will be here along with you. We're so glad to get this opportunity to talk to you. Yegel T. Welch, tickets to Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, available for purchase right now, but not many left. Broadway in Indianapolis.com. You can go to Ticketmaster.com. You can get them in person at Clues Hall on January 23rd through the 28th at Clues Memorial Hall. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful chatting with you. You too. You're listening to The First Day on 93 WIBC. At the end of 2023, we saw a lot of couples who chose to be married on 123123 or 123123. Those are our names. The angel numbers we talked about? Yes, yes, yes. 123123. Right, right, right. Oh, Denny, I'm so proud of you. Me too. You're welcome. Thank you, Kylan. Over the years, there's been a huge trend for couples to get married at an older age than what the age was for their parents and grandparents when they were married. My parents got married in the late 40s after the war, and they were both in their late teens. Both had graduated from high school, both had decent jobs in the post-World War II economy, and they simply left home, combined their lives emotionally, residentially, and financially. Things aren't quite that simple these days, and couples are waiting much later in life to take their vows. In the late 40s and even into the 50s, couples on average were in their teens. In the 1960s and 1970s, couples were in their early 20s. Today, because of social norms of cohabitation before marriage, the age of marriage has been pushed back to the early 30s, and with that comes a lot of issues. There are four things that can cause a marriage to fail. Finances, politics, religion, intimacy, and in-laws. Candidly, half of all marriages that do fail, fail because of financial matters. Getting married later in one's life has challenges for just how to combine finances after getting married. People in their early 30s have already established themselves financially, something that their parents and grandparents had not done before they got married 50 to 75 years ago. Combining finances is tough if it's not done correctly. And candidly, a lot of couples just don't combine finances. They've put their lives together, but they, for whatever reason, just don't want to combine their finances. I'll leave it to the sociologist to decipher this one over the next couple of decades. And I really do not want to make any general observations as to why we're seeing about 48% of couples not combining their finances in marriage. They, of course, have their own reasons. First of all, today's newlyweds have always managed their finances separately, and they many times find that talking about money is a conflict they just don't want to tackle, which makes me wonder if they tackle politics and religion and in-laws in their discussions. We'll save that for another day, too. Separate but equal finance managing in marriage represents nearly half of all first-time marriages right now. Second and third marriages are even less likely to combine finances, and the main reason for that has a lot to do with estate planning. It appears that for today's newlyweds, the basic approach is a cooperative effort with varying formulas of who pays what and how much. I've seen separate cars financed by separate spouses, 
I've seen co-ownership of houses, boats, and vacation homes, and even pets. There are arrangements of what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, and of course, there are some items that can become ours over time in marriage. For a fact, modifying financial arrangements is put on the back burner by well over half of first-time newly married couples. Here's what has really changed over the last three generations of newlyweds. The labor force. More and more women do not stay home as housewives like their mothers and grandmothers did in order to manage the household and the children. Most of all, households in America today are two-income households with each spouse contributing finances and energy to the maintenance of family and property. Who is paying the bills really doesn't seem to matter to the couples who are getting married a dozen years later than their parents and grandparents. And when parents and grandparents are asking questions, they have no idea how much friction they may be causing. Certainly more than they think. Comments like, well, if you don't trust Bobby or Julie enough to share the checkbook or combine your finances, then you shouldn't trust them at all. Those things have been said more than once between the generations. And aside from the hurt it might cause, it's just not a completely fair statement. And parents and grandparents need to remember that conflicts with in-laws is one of the top four reasons for breakups in marriage. Interestingly, the divorce rate has actually gone down since 2000. However, the divorce rates of couples who cohabitated before marriage are significantly higher than those that did not cohabitate. According to Forbes magazine, 50% of couples who did not cohabitate and combine their finances, they had marriages that lasted 20 years or more, compared to only 46% of those who lived together before marriage and did not combine finances, making it to the 20-year mark. The record indicates that 37% of marriages fail because of financial problems. Worse yet, the record indicates that 58% of marriages break up because too much conflict and arguing. My guess is that the conflict and arguing is about money. So where am I going with this? Well, first, there are a lot of statistics and a lot of opinions, but I have to tell you that there really is no right answer as to whether to combine finances or not when you get married for the first time. Look, I've been married almost 51 years, and that doesn't make me an expert. As a CFP practitioner and financial planner, though, I've seen as many divided finances homes as I have seen combined finances homes. Both work. From my experience and observations, what makes for success is putting together a written plan, a contract, if you will, between the marriage partners. This meeting of the minds before the wedding will set down some hash marks on the highway of married life. This makes more sense than you can imagine. If done properly, there are no surprises when the bills come due, and the reason there are no arguments or fights when those obligations arrive is because two mature adults were wise enough to think through the process ahead of time. So here's what little advice I'm willing to weigh in on all this. Talk about it. For goodness sakes, you talk about your parents, you talk about politics, you talk about religion, and I figure you're talking about your sex life too. It's time to give the green light to some frank financial discussions before and during marriage. Good luck. All right, thanks, Denny Smith. Next hour, Super Bowl's a fantastic fundraiser for Second Helpings. Devour Indie starts soon and Indie's music history when we return after the news on 93 WIBC.